God, we do uh, praise you and thank you for uh, the church. We thank you that through Jesus and his blood that he has purchased and established this new people of God called the church. God, what an honor and a privilege to be able to be a part of of the church and to be able to gather uh, in the name of Jesus this morning. We pray uh, for your word to go forth in power. Pray that you'd edify us. We pray for a submissive posture towards your word today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes a church a church? Maybe to ask it differently, um, let me put you in different scenarios. If you and your friends were studying the Bible together at a local coffee shop, and someone stopped and said, you know what, we should do this on Sunday mornings and call it church, would that be a biblically accurate statement? Or let's say you sleep in on Sunday and you're watching online worship service, is that church? Maybe you're listening to a sermon on a podcast on the way to work, is that church? Are there any theological differences between taking the Lord's Supper with your family at home or getting baptized at a pool or a river compared to taking the Lord's Supper and getting baptized with God's people gathered as the local church? Or how about this one? Let's say you have a close friend who's walking through unrepentant sin, but they're not a member of your church. Are you called to walk alongside him or her any differently than if he or she was a member of your church? These are important questions. Uh, They're important not in case you're going on a long road trip and you need to find a way to kill time, but because your response to those questions reveals a lot about your understanding about the church. In fact, uh, I would go as far as to say is that Our language, our vernacular about the church reveals what we believe to be true about the church. As a pastor, I'm just more in tune to how people talk about the church. And it's been very interesting over the last couple of decades, the way that people in general talk about the church has gone through uh, different shifts, different iterations that reveals what they believe to be true about the church. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, A few decades ago, uh, predominantly, people would talk about church as something that they go to, something that you attend, that the church was more or less a, a building, it's, it's an activity, it's, it's something that you went to. And of course, the implications of that is that church is more or less reserved for Sunday mornings. It's a place to be seen. But the language there is that we go to church. Well, of course, there was a shift that happened. People saw the danger of that, of kind of this, uh, this, this viewing church as more of an activity, and people were becoming discontent. They, they wanted church to impact them. They wanted to experience something at church. They wanted to be changed when they go to church. And of course, the implications of that is if you don't feel something on Sunday mornings, then God wasn't at work. But the language is that people started saying, we want to experience church, or we want to experience something at church. Of course, another shift happened. People saw the danger of focusing too much on the individual experience. And people started to say, we we need to live out the Bible. We need to be missional. We need to change the world. We need to be active in our faith. And so people would say, we need to do church. But then, of course, another shift happened, this time toward community 
People uh, wanted to walk alongside people, help carry each other's burdens, do life together. Why? Well, it's because we need to be the church. That the church is not just something you go to. It's not just something that you experience. It's not just something that you do, but you are the church. And no matter where you are or who you're with, you are the church. See, language matters. Our vernacular about the church reveals what you believe to be true about the church. And in 2020, and everything that we've experienced since then, I think has intensified immense confusion about the church. I can't tell you how many articles that I've read over the last couple of years where the position of these articles is that the church must change or it will die. The church must reinvent herself or it will become forever irrelevant. So many articles calling pastors to to change the way they preach, to change the focus away from the centralized local gathering of God's people because those things aren't that important. We are living in a time in which notions about the church range from the church being unnecessary, irrelevant, the church being archaic, the church being non-essential, the church being evil and abusive, and the church being whatever you want it to be. There is great confusion about the nature and the purpose and even the structure of the church. Well, this is part of the reason why we're going to be walking through Titus. Titus is only three chapters long, contains only 46 verses, and yet this letter argues that you cannot be a growing Christian without being deeply involved and committed to the church. Titus does a a wonderful job as Paul writes this. He marries both doctrine and deed, both belief and behavior, both conduct and creed, but not through the lens of individualism, where you think that in order to grow, it's just about me, my Bible, and my relationship with Jesus. But he does so through the lens of communal Christianity, this idea of we over me, that being sound in doctrine and zealous for good works are these twin themes that tie together this powerful short epistle, but done so in the context of the church family. This letter is going to challenge both our understanding of the church and our relationship with the church. Now, I want to be upfront and honest with you today. I don't want anybody to feel bamboozled walking out of this room. This is going to feel like two sermons in one today. Just want to be honest, this is going to feel like a two-in-one because what I want to do is I want to lay the groundwork and the foundation of Titus just to give us a framework since we're going to be spending the next 12 plus weeks in it. But I also want to look at one of the four reasons why I've selected Titus for our church to study over the next couple of months and unpack that one uh, reason in full. Okay, so let's, let's look at sermon number one, and we're going to look at a little bit of, of the background of uh, Titus. Let me just kind of set the scene for us. This will be helpful as we walk into uh, this important epistle. Look at verse one with me. We are informed that the Apostle Paul is the author. Uh, Titus was uh, written around 67 uh, AD while Paul was most likely ministering to the Macedonian churches. This is in between his first and his second uh, imprisonment. I want to give you kind of a snapshot of Paul's life, his ministry, 
uh, kind of giving you maybe a, a big picture of, uh, of when and where he was, uh, in particular to his missionary journeys, his imprisonments, the, the writings that he, that he had. Uh, and just notice that Titus is towards the bottom there. Titus was written towards the end of Paul's life and ministry. I think that's significant because when you get towards the end of your life, things that are most important tend to bubble to the surface. And in verse 4, we are introduced to the recipient of this letter, a man named Titus. Titus is mentioned 13 different times throughout the New Testament. He was a Greek, non-Jewish convert who became uh, some sort of a case study for us to determine if you need to become a Jew uh, demonstrated by circumcision in order to be saved. Now, along with First and Second Timothy, uh, Titus, they're known as the pastoral epistles. This is Paul writing to the sons, uh, his sons in the faith. And they're called pastoral epistles because uh, they're letters written to fairly young pastors dealing with pastoral issues in the local church. Now, Titus had a unique relationship with Paul, very close uh, to the Apostle Paul. He served with him on the second and third missionary journeys. He's known as a beloved disciple, a fellow worker in the gospel. The last mention of Titus came in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, where he had gone on to ministry in Dalmatia, which was in Southeast Europe. If you want a better snapshot on Titus's relationship with Paul, just read 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians um, contains nine uh, mentions of Titus. Nine of the 13 uh, is in that letter. I'll give you a good idea of their uh, relationship. But if you drop down to verse 5, verse 5 tells us that Titus is pastoring in Crete. Crete was one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean Sea, and Crete was visited by Paul on his way to Rome, according to uh, Acts 27. Paul returned back to Crete and later dropped Titus there to continue the work. This is kind of um, Paul's MO. He, he did this with Timothy at Ephesus, just kind of visited and dropped someone there to continue the work of ministry. He does the same thing with Titus in Crete. Now, Crete was a very immoral city, very difficult place uh, to do ministry. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 12, we learn that Crete was characterized by one of their famous natives as a place filled with liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Okay, so this is the place where Titus is dropped in order to do ministry. And, and, and Paul did this kind of with, with the church at Corinth. That Titus was mentioned, again, nine different times in the troubled church of Corinth. So it seems like Paul had a lot of confidence in Titus. Titus is almost like Paul's special, you know, spiritual Navy SEAL. Dropped into hard places, go and fix things, put things in order, and then move on. And that is, in large part, why Paul wrote this letter. Chapter 1, verse 5, Paul charged Titus to get things in order. And much of this letter is unpacking what that order looks like. What does a healthy church and healthy membership look like? And as Paul's unpacking that, he elevates that involvement in the church is a non-negotiable for growing Christians. Now, I mentioned that there are four reasons why uh, we're going to be studying Titus. I'm going to share three of the four next week, uh, but this morning we're going to look at just one, and I'm, I'm going to unpack that uh, hopefully in full. So here's uh, one reason why we're studying Titus. Probably the most important takeaway 
is that Titus is going to challenge us to have a participatory engagement and deeper commitment to the church. I'm using this phrase, participatory engagement, because I think that best sums up Titus. In fact, what we're going to see throughout this letter, again, only 46 verses, but seven different times, Paul is going to emphasize this phrase of good works. This idea of, of serving others happens in chapter 1, verse 8, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 7, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 8, and verse 14. But this is not a call to just do random works, to be a, a random good person. The way Paul uses this phrase is that they're, they're good works done in the context of the local church. Now, that's important because of the, the cultural default mindset uh, that, that, that took place in, in Crete, that if you were living in Crete, as chapter 1, verse 12, you were by default lazy, and that mentality was creeping into the church, that there is more of a, a spectator type of mindset even within the church, that because of what was happening in the culture, people were kind of sitting back and watching other people do ministry, that they weren't participants. So Paul's writing this, and he's saying, no, 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 if you really believe in the gospel, this is going to propel you toward good works, and good works done in the context of the local church. In fact, if you want a summary verse of, of the entire letter of, of Titus, look at chapter 2, verse 14. Talking about Jesus, Paul says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What Paul's saying there is that Jesus gave himself up on the cross not only to redeem us and purify us from all sin, but he did so in order to create a new people of God called the church, who are not lazy, who are not just spectators, but who are zealous for good works. In other words, who are engaged, who are participating in the life of the church. Paul's going to make this very clear in chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. We're going to get a, a, a picture of, of Paul's model of discipleship, his vision of, of what discipleship should look like in the church. And it's an all-hands-on-deck, all-inclusive He's going to call out the older women and the younger women, the older men and the younger men. No one's off the hook. When it comes to discipleship and life in the church, no one is sitting back watching. All are actively engaged. Now, the point that I want to make this morning is that none of this, none of what Titus has to say makes any sense unless we understand what it means to belong to the local church. If you're thinking about the practical implications of Titus, you're trying to obey and, and live this out, be a doer of the word, it's virtually impossible unless you understand what it means to belong to the church. And what I mean by that is not just kind of hovering on the surface, attending a few times a month, but I mean deeply and intimately connected and involved in the church. And that's important because the, the default mindset within Christianity is that the church is optional. The church is, is almost icing on the cake. It's really all about my relationship with Jesus and the Bible and me growing. And it's this individualistic version of Christianity that is so foreign to the New Testament. 
In fact, one pastor said that you, you cannot be joyfully obedient to Christ with nominal or no commitment to a church. And we believe at Pennington Park Church that one of the best ways to be committed to the church is to be an official member of the church. A formal expressed covenant with the local church is the best way to demonstrate a commitment to Jesus's bride, the church. And maybe when you hear that phrase, church membership, you roll your eyes. Maybe you're unconvinced of the need for church membership. Maybe you view church membership as legalistic or, or, or archaic or unnecessary or irrelevant. If that's you today, I just want to make a, a case for church membership this morning, why it should be practiced and why it should be applied in the local church. Again, under the umbrella of realizing that unless you're belonging to a church, you cannot live out the epistle of Titus and much of the New Testament. I know it's a hot take, but let me, let me convince you this morning, and if you are a member, this is just a wonderful reminder of what you've already committed yourself to. Let me give you four reasons for church membership. Number one, church membership is biblical. It, it is biblical. Now, for, for some, church membership, that idea, that's a new category. So let me give us just a helpful definition of church membership. This is from Jonathan Lehman's book, Church Membership, produced by Nine Marks. He describes church membership this way. He says that church membership is a formal relationship between a church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the context of the church. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but I hope that's helpful because what we're not talking about here is church membership is we all just get kind of matching tattoos, like, you know, painting part church forever, or, or being part of some sort of cult when we talk about church membership where, you know, we do weird things with each other's blood. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about anything weird or, or bizarre. We're, we're really talking about this formal relationship with other believers and with the leadership of the church. Here's the challenge, though, is that there's no mention of, of a membership class in the New Testament. In fact, there's no, membership of, uh, there's no mention of membership at all in the New Testament. But neither will you find the word Trinity throughout the Bible. And yet we all would agree that we see the practice and the concept of the Trinity throughout the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. And I would argue that we see both the concept and the practice of church membership throughout the New Testament. In fact, let me give you a couple of examples in the early church, you clearly have leaders who are counting and keeping track of who is in and who is out. You see this in, in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. There's a new miracle record of those who have professed Christ and who have been baptized. This is evidence that people are tracking, people are counting who's in and who's out. Acts 2, verse 41 to 47 says this, says this, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4 verse 4, there were 5,000 added that day. Someone's counting. Someone's keeping track of who's in and who's out. But it's not just anybody. It's not just anybody that walks in and listen to Peter's sermon that they're counted 
No, it's specifically those who have a credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus and who have been baptized. Let me give you a different example or different angle. In 1 Corinthians 5, and we saw this about a year and a half ago, the Apostle Paul is confronting the church in Corinth for approving a man who is living in blatant, unrepentant sexual morality. And in verse 5, he says, remove this individual from among you in the hopes that he repents. In verses 11 and 12, he pulls no punches. He says, don't even associate with someone like that. We see that same idea. We're going to look at this in Titus 3. We're going to get there in a couple of months. But towards the end of Titus 3, there's one who's stirring up division. Paul says in verse 10, warn them once, warn them twice, and then have nothing more to do with him. So the question is, how can you remove somebody? How can you, for lack of a better phrase, kick someone out if there's no in? Like if there's no formal commitment to a covenant community of faith, how do you remove someone from that community of faith? See, church discipline, straight from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew 18, is impossible to practice if church membership doesn't exist. So this formal relationship between the church and professing baptized believers, it's all over the New Testament. And it's really up to that local church to figure out what this looks like on the ground. I appreciate the author named Eric Lane who describes it this way. The church is not just a loose collection of individuals. It is a closely knit structure like a human body and has therefore, has therefore to be rightly organized. For such ordering, it needs to know exactly who belongs to it. A family which sat down to its meal table or locked its doors at night, not knowing who was supposed to be there and who not, would be an extremely strange phenomenon. An army battalion which did not know whom to expect on parade would soon be in chaos. If the church is to be a true family and an effective fighting force, it needs to know who exactly belongs to it. Or what we would say, they need to practice church membership. So that's the first reason I think we need to practice it. Here's the second reason. This is more practical. That church membership, I would argue, makes belonging a reality. Makes belonging a reality. When an individual is saved, he or she becomes a member of the body of Christ. That is the capital C universal church. Okay, you see this in 1 Corinthians 12 where it says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Okay, capital C, universal church there. And because that person is united to Christ and other members of the body, he or she is therefore now qualified to identify with the local expression of that body, also known as the local church, the lowercase c, church. In fact, you can make a strong argument that you're not actually part of the universal capital C church until you actually belong and are committed to a local church, lowercase c. Because the question is, is who's approved and affirmed your testimony of faith? Who has affirmed that your, that your faith in Jesus is genuine, who can see visible fruit justifying that your faith is actually genuine. Anybody can claim to be a Christian these days. 
anyone does claim to become a Christian these days. If you look at celebrities and athletes giving glory to God and claiming to be a Christian, but where's the fruit? Who's walked alongside them and said, yes, that there's evidence that he or she is a genuine believer? I would argue, I think the New Testament would argue, that having the church, the, the leadership of the church kind of come alongside individuals and say, yes, that testimony is credible. There is visible fruit in your life. Now, what I hear a lot in response to that is, whoa, hold on. Are you saying that you have to be a member of a church in order to be saved? Like that sounds like legalism to me. You're adding to the gospel. Not saying that at all. Not saying you have to be a member in order to be saved. What I am saying is that the normative description of the relationship between a Christian and the church is that they are intimately and deeply committed to one another, deeply involved in the church, or they've submitted to a group of leaders for giving them spiritual oversight in their life. If you read the New Testament, there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Now, another thing I'll hear from time to time is, well, aren't all Christians part of the universal church? capital C church, why do I need to become a member and be part of the local church? Well, that's like saying that you're part of the YMCA, where you enjoy the swimming, you know, working out, that part of the community, without actually being a member of the YMCA. It's just not possible. And I think for us, it's so easy to think that church is a place that you go to instead of a place where you belong. When you actually belong to a local church through membership, you actually experience the reality that the church is full of real people just like you. It's full of people with issues just like you, who have joys and pains, who have ups and downs, who have strengths and weaknesses. And when you are taking steps in in growing and, and getting deeper and deeper into the fabric of the church, That's where you experience the beauty of community. That's where you experience support when you need it. That's when you experience and find opportunities to to serve others. So I would argue that membership makes belonging a reality, not just theoretical. Because here's what tends to happen. If you're not a member of the church and you come and you're kind of hovering on the surface, you may come a few times a month, you might even be part of a small group. When community gets messy, and it does, it always does. Like when you're doing life with, with other believers and the more intimate you become with other believers, the more sin comes to the surface. And that's okay. That's part of our sanctification, working out our faith and applying the Bible in those settings. But when community does get messy, when you're held accountable because we all have blind spots and that's uncomfortable for you, if you're not a member, you can just leave and there are no consequences. You could just bounce and go on to the next church. And if that's your disposition, that makes truly belonging almost impossible to experience on the ground. See, I think a lot of people kind of view church as a place where they kind of slip in and slip out and get what they want and kind of move on with their day. And I've shared this before, but like that's not our vision here. Like there are two different ways of viewing church. One is to view church as like, the Home Depot experience, you know, guys, where we go to Home Depot and we find what we need. We don't talk to anybody. I don't need any help. I'm good. Find what we need and get out of there as quickly as possible and move on with our day. That's how a lot of people want church to be. They come in on Sundays. They don't want to talk to anybody. 
you know, get what I need, get the sermon, maybe sing a few songs, and, and get on with my day as if church is, is kind of this consumeristic, transactional experience. That's not our vision here. Like if, if that's your version of church, that, if that's what you want church to be, there are dozens of other churches in the area that we encourage you to go to. Our vision here at Pennington Park Church is Taco Tuesdays at your parents' house, where you show up there, it's a little messy, a little crazy. You got crazy Uncle Joe there in the corner making weird comments, double dipping in the chip dip. That's going to happen at the church, right? But here's what will happen. You're going to be cared for. You're going to be loved. All are welcomed. You're going to be known and embraced, and you're going to be well-fed. Like, we want church to be a family. And so, look, membership is not going to solve all of the issues related to loneliness. It's not going to solve having a lack of friendships. But what membership is, membership means that this is home. This is family. This is where I belong. This is where, even in the messiness of community, you're saying, I'm not leaving. I'm committed to these people, and these people are committed to me. It's a statement that community is part of my sanctification, even when it's hard. I think membership makes belonging a reality. Let me give you another reason why we practice church membership here. Uh, Church membership identifies, and this will be important as we walk through Titus especially, but it identifies who the elders are responsible to shepherd. I think church membership is implied in, in the way that the New Testament calls elders to care for the flock that's in their charge. 1 Peter 5 says, shepherd the flock that is among you, right? And of course, elders are called to care and love everybody, right, that walks through those doors within the limit of their ability. But the Bible tells elders that they have a special and unique responsibility to care for a certain group of people, a group of members. See, without church membership, it's really impossible to to apply Hebrews 13, 17, where it says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If there's no church membership, who is submitting to the leaders here? Is it anybody that walks through the doors of the church? Is it any Christian? Or is it the members? Or who will I, as an elder, and the other elders of this church, who will we have to give an account based on on how we've shepherded? Is it, again, anybody that walks through those doors? Is it any Christian? Or is it the members who have a formal and official expressed willingness to submit to the leadership of the church? See, I'd argue that we see that church membership is implied in this biblical requirement for Christians to submit to a group of leaders to provide spiritual oversight to their soul. And in order for that to happen, there must be some kind of expressed willingness or covenant or agreement or what we would call membership that precedes a person's submission to the leadership and who identifies who the leaders are responsible to shepherd. There's a lot more I could say there, but even when you think about accountability or being shepherded, what we're not, we're not saying that the elders are going to be hovering over your shoulder, pointing out right and wrong in your life all the time. 
the vision for shepherding for us is we want to walk alongside of you and point out truth because sometimes when you're knee deep in the messiness of life, you can't always see truth or apply it well. We all have blind spots. And so we, we want our sh- even our shepherding model to walk alongside people. It's not perfect. Obviously, we have sin and we have issues ourselves as elders. But this type of relationship is not something that you will experience if you just show up one hour a week and bounce. That membership, I think, enables this type of relationship to be able to apply and obey these commands. Well, finally, here's the fourth reason. I'll close with this one. I think membership helps to root out self-centeredness and helps to battle toxic individualism. You know, when we talk about membership, we tend to only think about the benefits that serve me. You know, think about membership, it's what do I receive? What do I get out of this? You know, when you uh, join a, church, uh, a gym membership, right, you experience the benefits of that facility, working out of that facility. If you have a Costco membership, you experience the benefits of shopping there. Well, church is a little bit different than those things. It's not only a place where you experience the benefits and the activities, it's also a place where you give, where you, where you participate in the life of the church. That membership is where you live out the principle, uh, we over me. It enables and, and fosters this environment where you can actually obey the one another commands throughout the New Testament. There are over a hundred one another commands throughout the New Testament. Membership enables us to actually obey those things. And look, I think that's so important because we live in such a consumeristic culture where everything is tailored around our particular needs. Things are tailored to to satisfy our specific preferences. And, And the cultural mentality being in this consumeristic kind of culture, is if something's not meeting your needs or satisfying your preferences, then you move on to another product. You move on to a different job. And sometimes you move on to a different spouse. And, and so being a member of, our, of a church is actually countercultural. You're saying, I'm committed to this group of people and they're committed to me, but I'm here not just based on what I receive, but also on what I give. Or maybe think about it this way. Let me just offer an analogy. Take marriage, for example. Within marriage, there is the the benefits and the activities of marriage, and then there is the institution or or the the skeleton of marriage. Now, the world, like we, we enjoy the activities of marriage, you know, shared experiences, shared confidences, you know, marital intimacy, all of those things. The, the institution of marriage is the covenants that that husband and wife make before God and before witnesses. That covenant outlines that that relationship with your spouse is different than any other relationship on the face of the planet. Now, the world in which we live in today, they really like the activities and the benefits of marriage, not so much the institution of marriage. But I fear that that same mentality is being adopted when it comes to the church by many believers, where many Christians love the activities and the benefits of of the church, the the preaching and the music and the children's museum and and all the programs. But when you start talking about the institution of the church or the skeleton of the church, this covenant that's expressed in membership, that's when people say, no, 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 I'm not not really into that. You know what that, that looks like? 
that looks like a friends with benefits type of relationship with the church. It's a very worldly approach to think to yourself, well, if this church isn't meeting my preferences, meeting my needs, I'm just going to move on to the church down the road. But the New Testament vision here, the church is less about a buffet where you pick and choose based on your individual preferences and needs. And the church is actually more like a shared family meal. You grow up in a family, you're not going to love every meal that's served by, by your mother. Right? Growing up for me, I did not like my mom's meatloaf. Hope she's not listening to this. But my brother loved it. And so when meatloaf was being served, it created a wonderful, challenging opportunity for me to die to myself, die to my sinfulness, not complain, and realize this isn't blessing me right now, but it sure is blessing my brother. The church is very similar. You are not going to love 100% of what happens at Pennington Park Church. Let me tell you a secret. Neither do I. Like even as a lead pastor, like I'm a member of this church. I have preferences. I have things that I would prefer things done this way or that way. But it's not about me. It's about the whole. It's the we over me mentality. And so if you experience things at this church and you're like, man, I don't love that or I don't prefer it that way, just stop and consider the fact that may not be blessing you, but that sure is blessing somebody else. And what a, what a wonderful opportunity to be sanctified, right? As your selfishness, kind of this, it's all about me, 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 gets surfaced to be able to confess that and repent of that and understand that the church is bigger than just you. The church is made up of the whole. And look, isn't this what the gospel calls us to? Isn't the gospel message a, a call to come and die? Isn't that what, what, we see, what we find Jesus saying? If anybody follows me, take up your cross, carry it daily, die to yourself. The church provides an environment to do that on really a weekly basis. And we are able to die to ourselves and our selfishness because there was one 2,000 years ago named Jesus Christ who died willingly on our behalf. That Jesus died in the place of sinners, in your place and in mine, in order to bring forgiveness upon our lives. And that's important because of the reality that, that because of Jesus, anyone is welcome into the church. That it doesn't matter what you have done, what sins you've committed, that Jesus offers to you forgiveness of every sin that you've committed if you place your faith and trust upon him. That Jesus can take you where you're dead in your sins and he can make you alive in him. He can transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. That he can take you where you're, you're guilty and you're unclean and he can make you righteous in him because of what he accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. And so as you think about the gospel message, like even the gospel is not about this individual personal salvation experience. Of course it is, but it's much bigger than that. That what Jesus did on the cross is he actually established and created the new people of God called the church. I love this passage in Ephesians 2, beautiful passage here, talking about just that. It says, 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, which describes all of us before Jesus saved us, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who, he who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful picture of what we get to experience on a daily basis of doing life together with others who are in Christ. That Jesus gave up his life for the church. So the question is, why would we view the church as optional? Why would we view our involvement in the church as something, well, if it, if it fits my schedule, I'll, I'll make time for it. If we're not out too late Saturday night, or if Johnny doesn't have a soccer game on Sunday afternoon, then we'll make it to church on Sunday. If Jesus did all this, why would we not orient our entire lives around the church? In fact, your involvement in the church reveals your belief in the gospel. Well, as we close, let me just give us a, a couple of next steps um, this morning in light of this and in light of kind of laying the foundation for Titus. Let me just give you a couple of steps here. Number one, <clears throat> some of you actually need to become a member. And I just challenge you to, to consider, you know, getting off the fence and, and having this official formal relationship with us. Some of you have been attending for years and you haven't taken this step to becoming a member. I just challenge you to do that on October 8th. There's a membership class coming up. And, and maybe you're not ready for that. Maybe you're still new and you're still kind of getting to know us. Maybe we're still in the dating phase. Um, and, and maybe you just need more information. Like we've got something that we call Discover which is a great place to get to know us, maybe take another date and, uh, and just explore who we are as a church. That's happening next Sunday during the second service. And then I'll throw this out there as well. Um, some of you are not in community where you come, but you're not known. And one of the best places to be known and to be embraced is a small group. We've got seven small groups launching this fall. And next Sunday, we're having something that we're calling Small Group Sunday, where there will be different small groups that we posted up in the lobby and almost like a small group fair or you know, speed dating, if you will, if that's your cup of tea, for you just to kind of check out what groups are available and, and maybe that's a step that you want to take. And if that's not um, how you want to go about it, you can always email Pastor Mark Skydema to talk about opportunities to get involved in a small group. Look, church, God has been so faithful to us over the years, so faithful He's been so kind, and just speaking on behalf of the elders, we want to focus on the kind of church that God wants us to be. And, and this involves all of us making sure that we are deeply committed to one another as we think about doing life together for years to come. So let's pray, and we'll close with that. God, we thank you, and we do praise you for the church. What an unbelievable privilege to be called, Lord, someone that, that you would say, is part of your body, that we are united with Christ, we are united with one another. God, thank you that we don't do life alone. Thank you that we can have other brothers and sisters know us, know every part of us, 
And yet there's a trust there and there's a, a, a unity that we get to experience because of what we have in Jesus. God, I pray for those who are here today and they're on the fence as it relates to their, their commitment to the church. I pray that you would nudge them today. I pray that you would show them the beauty of what it means to be part of the church. And God, I know that that can be scary or some who are in this room have had a bad experience with the church or bad experience with membership. God, we are imperfect. Even Pennington Park, we have flaws, areas where we need to grow in. And yet, God, you have created the church to be the mechanism by which we grow, by which we are sanctified. So thank you for the, this beautiful mess called the church. We give you praise for her in Jesus' name. Amen.